Well, we're going to finish up chapter 4 of Corinthians, which is really the first unit of the book. Paul's repairing the division in the church. We said that God's design is to build Christ-centered communities. He's, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and God will call to himself men and women, red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor. He brings them together into families, local fellowships, local assemblies. And of course, as you know, anytime you bring a group of sinners together, even two of them in marriage, there's the potential for conflict. And as with many other churches throughout history, they were experiencing division. The division that they had may not necessarily be the reason that other churches have division. Nevertheless, it's practical and helpful for us to go, okay, so how do we avoid things like this in our church and how do we continue to grow? Well, this morning we're going to talk about something that's deeply built into all of us, and that is the desire to be popular, the desire to be liked, the desire to be approved of, the desire to have status, the desire to be accepted, our fear of standing out or being different and being rejected. I was thinking as I thought about this sermon many, many years ago, my son was probably in 11th grade and at that time at the Oxford Valley Mall, Abercrombie and Fitch, you wanted to get your clothes from there. And so one day I had told him I would get him something there and I had just gotten done playing basketball so I had a pair of gym shorts on, sneakers, t-shirt and I think I had a sweatshirt on and so as we're walking up to the store he says, um, Dad, um, do you mind if you wait out here? <laughs> and I said, well, why? He goes, well, like, they don't really like people like that. <laughs> and I go, well, they'll get over it because I'm paying. <laughs> so if, if I don't go in, you're not getting anything. So, but you know, as, as humorous as, as that is, that, that sort of resonates in all of us because we do desire to be well-liked. We crave approval. And there's different ways early on that even as we're growing up, we, we seek this out. We find out we might be smart, and so we're going to feed on that. We find out we might be athletic, and we might feed on that. Someone tells us early on, oh, you're cute. Not us, but some of you. Someone told you, you're cute. And so you fed on that. And, and, and sometimes if you couldn't feed on that, you just became the class clown, or you would just act out just to get noticed. And so when Christianity clashes with that particular part of our fallen nature, there can be a real conflict because you can't have both. You cannot be a Christ follower and continue to be popular and liked by everyone. In fact, Jesus talked about this. He said, you have to count the cost. If they hated me, they'll hate you. The Apostle Paul said, anyone who desires to live godly as a Christian will be persecuted. Paul had to wrestle with this. In Galatians 1, he said, if I was still trying to please men, then I couldn't serve Christ. But what we often do as Christians is we try to figure out a way to, to blend them two together. I can be a Christian and still be liked by everybody. And that's part of what the Corinthians were doing. You see, in, in that time, in that world, they lived in a shame-based culture. So particularly in that time, status was such a big deal. 
You didn't want to be seen as a servant. You wanted to be seen as somebody important. They were so hungry, craving approval. And so one of the ways to do that in that culture was to be wise. Because if you were wise, then you were influential. And if you yourself weren't wise, then you wanted to identify with someone that was and, and, and sort of bring out your status. You wanted to be known as popular. We're all like this. Years ago, I, I went to a, a hotel to watch one of my daughters play field hockey down in Maryland, and the Pittsburgh Steelers were, were in a banquet hall, and all the fans were watching them. And, um, but we weren't allowed in the banquet hall, at least in the front door. So I went all the way around to the back, and I saw there was a, a curtain in front of a door, and I'm looking through the door, and all of a sudden, there's no sign that says you can't go in. This, this Pittsburgh Steeler comes out, so when he came out, I stepped in. And all of the Steelers are sitting in the vent. You know, they're just sitting. It was like a banquet hall. They're just in flip-flops and shorts, and they're watching a, a football college football game. It's a Saturday afternoon, and I'm just standing on the wall. I'm looking for Big Ben, trying to figure it out. And this guy comes over who works there, and he says, excuse me, sir, are, are you on the team? <laughs> he couldn't have said anything more brilliant. <laughs> so I said, no, I'm not. He said, well, you'll have to leave. I fed on that. I told my wife, he thought I was on the Steelers. <laughs> the rest of my life, I will tell people, I get mixed up as one of the Steelers. <laughs> That's my way of interpreting it. I think he was being polite. I mean, come on, George Blanda was a punter till he was like, what, 50 or something? So anyway, here's, here's how Paul finishes off. He's going, look, we've got a problem in this church. He said, you're puffed up against each other. You have not a, an inferiority complex. He said, a bunch of you have a superiority complex. And what was happening is they were trying to go, look, being identified with a cross and with Christ is humiliating. So let's keep that on the lowdown. Being identified as wise and influential and powerful is, is what I want to be. We'll do both. And by the way, look at Paul. <laughs> that dude's a loser. He's not a gifted speaker. He doesn't dress well. He's poor. He's, he, he's just, he's nobody, so don't listen to him anymore. And Paul is, is, is vexed. And so we've been reading these four chapters, and he used illustrations from, from, from agriculture. He said, look, you're a field... I'm just a, 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 a sower and God, a waterer. God's the one who gives increase. And then we saw he used the illustration of a builder. He said, look, I'm, I'm just a builder. I laid a foundation. We better build it on Christ. And so he's been using all these analogies. So the, the passage ends in 6 through 21 with, with some really practical ways for us to look at ourselves. Number one, let's start in verses 6 through 7, where we're going to learn from Paul that we need to be careful not to consider ourselves superior to other Christians. What would cause someone to think that they're superior to another Christian? Well, I know my Bible better. I pray more. I don't go to movies. <clears throat> I come to prayer meeting. There might be subtle ways that we consider ourselves superior to others. And so, Paul's going to call this out. Look at verse 6. He says, now, these things that I've been talking about, these illustrations I've been using, brothers, I have figuratively applied them to myself and Apollos for your sakes, in order that 
you might learn not to exceed what is written in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So let's just pause there and say, okay, Paul, what are you saying here? Apollos was really very brilliant, knew the Bible, was very influential, gifted speaker, powerful. Paul was the opposite. And so the Corinthians had this desire to attach themselves to Apollos and anyone like him and to not attach. They, they would have told Paul, Paul, can you wait outside the Abercrombie of church because you're not really an example of what we consider to be superior. So I want you to notice a couple of things here. He goes, when we do that, we exceed what is written. Now, there's so much discussion in the commentaries. Like, what is he talking about there? Do not exceed what is written. What scriptures is written there that he's referring to? And, and really, there's no way to know for sure, but I think this is a good thing to mark down. Whatever church background you come from, make sure that your beliefs do not exceed what is written. You and I should always be asking this question. Where's that in the Bible? Why do we do this? Is that in the Bible or did somebody just add that to the Bible? because you will find that there's a tremendous temptation among humanity to add to Scripture. And Jesus spoke of this. He called them the traditions of men. In Matthew 15, he said, why do you forsake the Word of God and elevate the traditions of men? So whatever they were exceeding, and it was probably something to do with how you're supposed to view yourself, he said, you need to stop doing that. Now, he's being subtle here because when he says arrogant in one in behalf of one against the other, what was really happening is there were people in the Corinthian church who were telling the Corinthians, you do not have to listen to Paul. You don't. He says he's an apostle, but he's not. You listen to me. And Paul is gradually coming after them and saying, listen, I'm not messing around here. So then Paul says... What would cause you to think you're superior? Well, often what causes us to think we're superior is the gifts that we've received from God, okay? I mean, think about that. The Bible says there are six things God hates, seven that are abomination to him. Number one is a proud look. Oftentimes, people are proud and look down on others because they have some gifts and there's nothing wrong with having gifts. You could be extremely good looking, unless my glasses aren't working, I'm not, I'm not seeing you out there, but um, no, I'm just kidding. There's <laughs> lots of you. You could be very wealthy. You could be very athletic. You could be incredibly smart. And, and, and humility doesn't go, oh, I'm stupid and ugly. I can't do nothing. It says, anything that I have, I should never think of myself better than others because these are just gifts from God. I didn't create my looks. I didn't create my brain. I didn't create my abilities. God gave them to me. So in the church, God poured out rich grace on some of the Corinthians. They had extremely gifted people in their church. In fact, in chapter 1, he says, you are enriched. There were people that had powerful gifts, but the problem was they began to elevate themselves. So this is a great way to think of anything that you're good at. He says in verse 7, who regards you as superior?
if people keep telling you you're good at something, right, pretty soon you could start thinking, you know, that's not lying, <laughs> not bragging, just saying, right? Who regard you as superior? Perhaps they would say, well, everyone, you know, my friends tell me. He goes, okay, fine. Then let me ask you a second question. What do you have that you did not receive? If you are superior in any gift, where'd you get that from? See, that's the key. Humility isn't saying I'm stupid and I'm not better at anything. It's if I'm better at anything, it's simply a gift of God's grace. I think that's one of the reasons I barf a lot when I'm watching sports is because every time someone does something good, nowadays you jump up and you're like, yeah, it's about me. Did you see what I just did? And like, dude, we just paid you a million dollars. We just shut up and go do what we're paying you to do. But everybody wants it to be about them. Look at me. And God gets mad at that. He goes, why do you regard yourself as superior? In fact, our whole culture is so screwed up. This is abominable that we pay people hundreds of millions of dollars simply because they're a genetic mutation and they could slam a round ball through an iron ring. That's bizarre. And we need to see it that way. I'm not advocating boycotting sports. I'm advocating boycotting worshiping people who simply are gifted. So the way that we should view our abilities are, verse 7, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So if someone says, hey, that was really good, you don't have to go, no, I'm not good. I'm a piece of trash. Don't worship me. Just say, well, thank you. I praise God. I'm happy to use my gift. So we have to, to, to be careful not to consider ourselves superior to other people. When we get like that, number one, it, it shows a lack of gratitude, right? If I think I'm a big deal at something, I, I forget that whatever, even if you have a lot of money, there's a great temptation for wealthy people. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. First Timothy 6 says, instruct those who are wealthy to be generous. But there's just a temptation when you're wealthy to think you're better than others. So First Timothy 6 says, instruct those who are wealthy not to think too highly of themselves, but to hope in God and to be generous. So whatever gifts, blessings, abilities we have, we can praise God for them. Unfortunately, what the Corinthians were doing is they were going, well, obviously, I'm superior to you. So we have to watch that. Now, the second thing is, in our desire not to consider ourselves superior, Paul says, and by the way, you Corinthians, that's exactly what you're doing. So as Benjamin said, he's being sarcastic here. Now, I'm, I'm going to tweak what Benjamin said. He goes, we can either be sarcastic or loving. Or could we say, at, at certain points, being sarcastic might be loving. Don't you try that at home, fellas. I'm just loving you, honey. I'm just loving you. But, but, but it is interesting that, that he uses sort of an irony here. You see, Jesus promised that when he comes back, we will inherit the earth. He said, blessed are you that hunger now, you will be filled one day we will rule and reign with him. Unfortunately, some of the Corinthians thought that that was already happening, that they were already there. You know what term we use for that. that you ever wonder what this means? That person thinks they arrived. Arrived where, right? The Corinthians thought that they had already inherited this status of kingship and that they were superior to these earthlings and unfortunately, Paul wasn't one of the ones that made it. He wasn't in this inner circle of superiority. And what he, what he was trying to tell him is, guys, you don't understand. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he, he brought the kingdom of God. So in one sense, yes, 
it is already being unfolded. The kingdom of God is happening now. Each time someone gets saved, they're taken out of the kingdom of darkness, put them in the kingdom of God's Son. But the kingdom of God has not arrived, and so Christians should not view themselves in this life as kings. The Bible says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But look how the Corinthians had perceived themselves. Now, Paul's being facetious here, right? This isn't true, but this is how they view themselves. You are already filled. Remember, Jesus said, if you hunger now, you'll be filled. But he meant in the kingdom. You have already become rich. Now, again, he's not talking here about they all had a million dollars in their bank. Look at this. You have become kings. And then, then he adds something, without us. What does he mean by that? Here I'm an apostle who brought you to Christ. I raised you up, and now you just passed by me, and you are already reigning as a king on this earth. Wow. You have quite a view of yourselves. Paul says, you know, to be honest, I wish that you had become kings. Meaning, I wish you were reigning as a king right now, he says, so that we would reign with you. Don't forget that we are going to reign as kings. That's a blessing. The Bible says God has made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and we will reign on this earth. We will judge angels. We will inherit the earth, but not yet. And they were already like, no, no, now. So Paul, now he's going to spin around. He's going to go, ain't that something? You're so superior, and you've arrived. Meanwhile, he says, think about us apostles. We are so inferior. I mean, look at us. We are losers. If only we could be like you. And what's so funny is they're looking down on this poor, you know, low-life Paul and thinking he should become like us. And Paul's looking at them going, you should become like me. But look how he does it. He says, you know, take us, for example, unlike you reigning Corinthian kings. He goes, I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Men condemned to death. Now, this was, this was a, a, a phrase that they understood. In that culture, when a king went out and won a battle, they would bring back plunder and spoils. The soldiers would come back and they would have a parade. The people would line the streets and have a parade. Isn't that weird? That people would have a parade on Broad Street and celebrate some victory? How weird, right? So in this parade, at the end of the line were some of the people who had been captured who were kept alive. They didn't kill them all. They kept some alive. Why? To bring them back. And everyone knew what was going to happen to them. They were going to be thrown into the, into the arena and just become sport to watch them killed. And so Paul says, that's kind of how I feel as an apostle. As the world's looking at everybody, we look like the people who are last in the line, men condemned to die. That's how the world sees us. But that ain't how God sees us. So he says, in fact, you know how the world sees us? How they see me? Not only as a man condemned to death, he said, we've become a spectacle to the world. You're not supposed to do that, right? Don't talk too loud. Like one time my wife 
on our first anniversary. Those of you who know me know me that I can eat. I eat hard, fast, and continuously. So we're at a restaurant, and she, she can't finish her food. She says, you want mine? I said, absolutely. Let me finish mine. Well, in between time, this fancy restaurant, the, the wait, waiter just comes and snatches her plate. It's half full of, of food, and he starts walking away. I go, sir, and he doesn't hear me. I go, sir, this is a fancy restaurant. Sir, and my wife's like, <laughs> you finally brought it back. Now, some of you would just go, just take the loss because you don't want to make a spectacle of yourself, right? Paul says, we've become a spectacle to the world, but think about this. What in the world does he mean when he says both to angels and to men. It's just a vivid reminder that there's a lot more at stake than what we see. The Bible says unbelievers walk by sight. Believers walk by faith. There's not only a, a, a horizontal earthly realm in which God is unfolding his drama of redemption, but there's a spiritual realm involving myriads of angels who are in conflict and battle God's angels, and Satan's principalities and powers, and there's a war on this earth. And God, as he created this planet earth, he designed it to demonstrate acts of his grace and wisdom, not only to us, but to angels. In Ephesians chapter 3, it says, God formed the church that he might make known to the principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God. In fact, later in the book, Paul's going to talk about uh, having head covering. He says, because of the angels. Like, don't forget, angels are watching what's going on on earth. And I wonder what God's angels think when they see us pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they're going, they're talking about us. We do your will right, Lord. Lord, didn't they just say they want your will to be done on earth like up here? How come they're not doing it then? So Paul says, there's a cosmic significance to the Christian experience. God is being glorified not just among humanity, but even in the realm of angels. So then he begins to give a series of contrasts. He says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. Wow. I see a direct correlation here. You ready for this? To people who go, I talk to others about Christ, and sometimes people who don't like, people don't like me, I look like a fool. And then there's other people who go, I'm more prudent. I just witnessed by my life, <laughs> and everyone likes me. You see, you see the, the problem here? Maybe you were told, witness by your life, and if necessary, use words. I like what R.C. Sproul said. If necessary, use words to rebuke people who say that. Because everyone will like you if you never use words, right? So Paul goes, I get it. You want to look superior. We look like fools because we like to talk to others about Jesus. Now, God's not asking you and me to put on a sandwich board and go on the train station and go, you must be born again. You must. But he's asking you to speak up about Christ when you have an opportunity to say, hey, could we talk about Jesus at some point if you're open to that? To sort of be willing, and this is the whole issue. We don't want to be rejected. We want people to like us. And we all know this, that if you're a Christ follower, some people won't like you. And Paul goes, oh, you're, you're, you're so clever. You're so prudent. He goes, look at us. We're weak, but you're strong. 
you're distinguished. I mean, they want to they walk down the street and go, there goes, look, there goes that, there's Alexander. He actually goes, I heard he goes to one of those Christian assemblies. Man, I, I want to be like him. Paul goes, but us, <laughs> we're without honor. He says, in fact, you want to know, you want to know my circumstances right now? To this present hour, and he's going to say it twice, we're hungry and thirsty. You go, you are hungry and thirsty? You're the apostle Paul. You have not, you're not in a gold chariot. You haven't started your, your, your arena evangelism where you take up million-dollar offerings to enhance your image. He goes, we're roughly treated and poorly clothed and homeless. Now, this word doesn't mean he's, he's sleeping under a bridge. It means he has no permanent home like the apostles. They just left their home and where are you going to stay tonight? I don't know, wherever the Lord provides. And then he begins to give a list of, of his, his lifestyle. Now, think about how this lifestyle is so much like Christ. Did Christ have a place to lay his head? Nope. He says, we toil working with our hands. That's what Jesus did. When we are reviled, we bless. Isn't that what Jesus told us to do? Blessed are you when men make fun of you for being a Christian. He says, when we're persecuted, we endure. We don't say, I'll sue the pants off of them and let them come and try to, let them come and try to arrest me for being a Christian. I'll blow them away with my M16. Oh, okay, that, that's how Christ wants us to endure persecution as Christians, is to fight them off. He says, when we're slandered, we try to conciliate, we try to, we try to console. He says, you know how the world views us? He says, we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Th these two words, one of them was used for wiping off the stuff on the bottom of your shoes. The other one was the, 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 the sediment in the bottom of a vase or, or, or just off-scouring, like, like other than when he uses in Philippians 3, doo-doo, when he says, we count all things to be rubbish, which is the Greek word skubala, which is, which is excrement. He goes, that's how the world views us, as scum. And I'm going, wow, so Paul, am I supposed to like intentionally go around trying to be a scumbag? Like, like what are you getting at? In fact, this is a true story. There's a church in Colorado that has taken this passage and elevated it and said, you know, we want to reach the lowest of society. So guess what the name of the church is? Scum of the earth. Look it up. <laughs> Scum of the earth. And, and a friend of mine visited there and he, and he said, you should have seen the people that came, right? Would they have fit in here or would, would we have stared at them like, ew, what are those filthy creatures doing here? So why is Paul doing this? I think he's saying, look, you, you, you think that we are inferior. But you know, I couldn't help but being reminded of something that Jesus once said. He said, remember this, that that which is highly esteemed among men is often detestable in the sight of God. Wait, say that again, Jesus. That which is highly esteemed among men is often detestable in the sight of God. That's why I need this book, right? Because if I just live 
the way I live and think the way I think, I take my cues from society, my values, what's important, what do I do with my money, what do I do with my time, what should I pursue? I mean, didn't Andre Agassi already teach us, the great tennis player, image is everything, right? But then when I have this book and I'm being transformed through the renewing of my mind, and this book makes me uncomfortable because it reproves and rebukes me, and I'm sitting here reading this going, but wait a minute, Paul, we're Americans. <laughs> Like, isn't that, don't we have an exception? Like, it, uh, can't, can't we be both? Like, the heads of society, the fathers of our, of our culture, and be Christians? Well, how's that been going lately? I'm not seeing too many godly people who speak out for Christ who are being, being given a mic and interviewed on, on, on the radio, not in terms of the broad public, and more and more Christians are being pushed out to the side. So, Paul then moves to his next point. He goes, okay, don't think you're superior. You think you've arrived. Look at us. We're inferior. Not really. Then he says this. I want you to imitate my inferiority. Imitate what you consider my inferiority. So, think about the tension here. They're thinking, he needs to be like us. And he's thinking, no, no, you need to change the way you view yourself and the way you view me, and you need to become like me. And, and you know, this is a great passage because it gives us some great principles, not only for discipleship, but even for parenting. See, as parents, right, we see attitudes and behaviors in our children that we want to correct and we want to change. Can I give you a hint, though? Please don't say this. Why did you do that? How could you do that? Because if kids were smart enough, they'd probably ask you, did you ever do that? And the worst answer you can give is, we're not talking about me. So come alongside them and say, hey, listen, I know where you're coming from. I'm tempted, and I've been down that route. So, so the point here is he's now saying, look, I want you to imitate me. For the way I live, that's what a real disciple is. When we, when we say, oh, I didn't know they, they swapped it out on me. And see, I turned my back from in, they swapped my banners. But when we say we're, we're, we're making disciples, what is a disciple? It's a forgiven follower who is becoming like Christ in our beliefs and our behavior. And Paul's looking at these Corinthians and he's going, your beliefs and behavior are not Christ-like. So let's look at, if you're discipling people, let's look at some of the ways how he's trying to change their beliefs and behavior. As parents, let's look at some of the ways Paul is, is trying to change their beliefs and behavior. And then the most important thing is, because this thing was slicing me up, the sword of the Spirit, let's look at how God wants to change our beliefs and behavior about ourselves. So let's start in verse 14. Now this is, this is I, I, I still go, wait. He says, I do not write these things to shame you. And I go, that's a lie. <laughs> or at least at first it seems that way, right? What could be more shaming to them? But I think what he really meant by that is, is that my ultimate goal here is not to shame you, but to admonish you. Now, this is an important word in the New Testament. The word admonish is most often translated to warn. In fact, the Greek word nutheteo is actually the foundation. For those of you that study Christian counseling, you'll remember a, a brother by the name of Jay Adams who was the founder of what's now called CCEF, 
the Christian Counseling Education Federation, right down by Westminster Seminary. We love their material. We love their programs. Ed Welch, Paul Tripp, David Paulson, great stuff. But, but Jay Adams took this word and he, he coined a term, neuthetic counseling, in, in which he basically just said this, one of the most important ways to help people is to hear their problems and then admonish and warn them and correct them from the scripture, right? Now, there's lots of nuances to that because some people would say, well, what if a person has anxiety? Ah, there's no medical problem. They just need to be rebuked for worrying. Like, yeah, there, there's some room to, 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 to consider other things, but I think Adams had a great point. When it comes to counseling, and this is what I love about CCF, you know what their motto is? To restore Christ to counseling. Because there's a lot of Christian counseling out there where Jesus isn't even in the picture. And then he says, and to restore counseling to the church. Every time someone has a problem, we don't have to refer them to a counselor. Paul said to the Romans, I am comfortable that you're able to admonish one another. So Paul just says, look, I see some areas where your beliefs and behavior are off base, and I love you, so I'm going to come alongside you and admonish you as though you were my beloved children. So he's changing the metaphor. You're like, Paul, first you're a farmer, then you're a builder, now you're a father. And in fact, what he means by that is, I led you to Christ. Look what he says. If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I led you to Christ. And then he says something profound. He says, so here's what I want you to do. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. You ready to tell your children that? You ready to tell other people that? You want to follow Christ? Be like me. So Paul says, as much as I would like to come back and spend some time with you and model for you a servant's heart and a humble spirit and hard work and treating everyone as equal, I can't come right now. So he says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. He says, for this reason I sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. In other words, he says, Timothy's going to come into your presence and he's going to have conversations with you. And he's going to kind of root out some of you who are bragging. And he's going to find those of you who are speaking wrongly about Paul. And he's going to have a little chat with you. And he's going to remind you and model you. And the Corinthians are like, well, that seems unfair. Why, why, why are you doing that to us? And Paul goes, I'm not just doing that to you. Look what he says. I teach everywhere in every church. Every church on planet earth that's following Jesus Christ should simply be following this book. It's not rocket science, right? It, it's, it's simply Christian discipleship from the scriptures based on the word of God. What does it look like to find my new identity in Christ and then live that way? So Paul closes out now with one final thought. He imitates, he, or he urges them to imitate them, and now he sends out a warning to them. He sends out a warning. You're like, a warning? Yeah. At this point, he's now going to single out some of the people who, who are really challenging him. Look at verse 18. Some have become arrogant 
as though I were not coming to you. Now, what does that mean? So Paul had sent them an early, earlier letter saying, you need to stop fornicating. And they were like, we don't have to stop fornicating. He, in that letter, he had said, you need to stop going to the idol's temple because that's a stumbling block. And they go, we don't have to do that. And in fact, if Paul were to come here, I'd probably beat him up. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul goes, some of you say his speech is unimpressive. His presence is weak. He just writes scary letters when he's not there. And so some of you have actually reached the point of saying, you know what, he won't come because I'll put him in his place. And for the first time, Paul begins to show us his apostolic authority. Look what he says. He goes, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. What does he mean by that? Go back and read the story of Korah in the book of Numbers when he challenged Moses. And Moses fell on his face and said, don't make it come to this. And Korah said, yeah, it's coming to this. Moses said, well, come back in the morning. And it didn't end well for Korah. And God gave Paul apostolic authority. We know from the book of Acts he could strike men blind. We're going to learn from next week's message that he could put people to death. He had apostolic authority. But notice how restrained he was with it. He said, the kingdom of God doesn't consist in words, and I'd love to talk more about that, but in power. So what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of love and gentleness? By the way, that's a great verse for parents. It's not one or the other. Sometimes the rod is the way to love. But hold that rod with great tenderness and great restraint. So let's just close with a couple thoughts here. As a Christian, are you preoccupied with a desire to be approved, to have status, maybe on social media? Has your desire for likes engulfed your desire to make Christ known? Gordon Fee said this, if we stood more often in opposition to the status quo of the world, we might know more what it means to be thought of as the scum of the earth in the eyes of beautiful, powerful people. So it's just a good heart check to say, am I worried about the people where I work and what they think of me more than what they think of him? If you're a young person, are you more worried about being cool and popular in school than being known as a follower of Jesus? Am I, when I'm at a family gathering and a bunch of unbelievers, do I hide it under a bushel because I don't want them to think I'm weird? Another thing that struck me here is, if Paul said, imitate me, just ask yourself for a moment, is, is, can you think of any ways that you're modeling Christ-like living? The Christian life's supposed to be the way of the master, but in our culture, it's more, I am the master. So think about, are there any ways that you're modeling it so you can tell others, hey, try to be like me in this. Because one of the basic ways of learning Christian obedience is by example. The obedience factor is learned in many ways by people who are living it. So one of the things that, 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 that's also worth noting is, think for a moment, is there anybody that you look to that you say there's a lot of qualities in that person that that are Christ-like? The Bible tells us that. Paul said, mark those who are walking the right way and follow them. So the Christian life is always about looking to others who are godly and trying to become like that.
but also trying to model to others, come along with me. As a parent, let's, let's, let's recalculate the gentleness of wisdom and love, but the necessity of firmness. As a spiritual leader, I have to balance this tension of speaking truth. I mean, this is a great model. Paul shows us. He didn't come and clobber them and go, you, you dare resist me. When I get there, I'll lay you all out. You'll meet your maker tomorrow. Look how gently he models for them, but he's willing to get in their business. And if you're going to be a spiritual leader, if you're going to be a discipler, we have to be willing to gently admonish people. And we also have to be humble enough to be open to someone admonishing us. It's not a one-way street. As we often say, the church is like a hospital and we all need to be on the gurney at times. A couple, couple more things real quick. I doubt too many of us in this church are struggling with an inferiority complex. I'm sorry, a superiority complex. Let me take that back. Beside me, there's probably not a whole bunch of you that are struggling with a superiority complex, right? But I think also it's important to be reminded, don't let Satan beat you down with an inferiority complex. He is a liar, and he wants you to believe that you're a worthless piece of trash and God could never use you. And that is wrong. You're not ugly, stupid, and worthless. If you're a Christian, you are a dearly loved child of God, fully forgiven, God doesn't keep you on the team like the stepchild that he keeps in the far back, but he's embarrassed of you. You are a blood-bought, dearly loved child of God. So don't let the devil beat you into believing that you are nothing and worthless and, and an idiot and stupid, and no one would care if you weren't here anymore, because that's a lie. And as a community, we want to go around and reach one another and let everybody know that you're loved and you're important. And nobody's better here. The pastors aren't superior. The elders aren't superior. We're a family. The only one that's superior is Jesus. So as we close, ask ourselves as well-fed, comfortable Americans, do we sometimes live as though we've arrived? Do we look at the Corinthians and go, oh, those losers, and forget that that's, that's somewhat like the church of Laodicea when Jesus said, you think you're rich. <laughs> you need nothing but you're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. This is our compass. We need the Word of God to pierce the thoughts and intentions of our heart, to show us what it looks like. I hope you're motivated to go, I want to live like Jesus. He has forgiven me. I want to I be the way of the master. I want to go out and love people, endure all things, hope all things, believe all things, be patient and kind and forgiving. And you know where you can start that? In your home. Because if you can't even treat your wife or your husband or your children with gentleness and love, then how are you going to do it anywhere else? And if you view yourself in the wrong way, Satan's got you bound. So let's take a moment and just say, God, I thank you that you dearly love me. I probably have some gifts, but I'm not some big deal. The kingdom's not here because I'm here, but nor am I a worthless piece of junk. But I belong to Jesus, and as Paul closes, he says, let's just walk together like Christ because that's what's going to influence and shape the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word again. You get right to our motives and heart. I think there are some people here who are still not yet Christians. 
I pray that you will convict them of their lost condition, that they are on their way to hell without Christ. And I pray that you will prompt them to ask someone how to become a Christian. Thank you for your word, Jesus. Help us to become like you, wonderful master. Help us to be servants. Help us to be gentle. Help us to be ready to suffer. Help us to realize that if we follow you, the world's not going to like us, and that's quite all right. Help us to trust you and to just roll up our sleeves, put on our towel, and be willing to wash one another's feet. Thank you for the way you are blessing this church. Thank you for the women's luncheon yesterday. We pray for this upcoming men's breakfast this next Saturday that it will be a blessing as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.